0: We didn't get to it last week, obviously it wasn't here, but please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 12, we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Joshua, starting in Joshua 12 this morning, and I want to warn you briefly about our approach, it's going to be a little different than it typically is, because we're going to be covering 12 through 19 in our time together this morning. Um... As a result, we're going to be skipping over a little bit. We're not going to read every single verse, partially because there's a tremendous amount here and partially because you don't want to hear me butcher the number of names that you find in this text here this morning. George recommended that rather than preaching, I just read all 242 verses in our time together. I I didn't think that was such a great idea, much as I respect George's wisdom and experience. Uh, Which reminds me, I want to take a moment, I want to thank George for his willingness to preach for me last week as I uh, got up Saturday morning and was not feeling well. Turned out it was strep throat, and so uh, I was not able to preach, um, but I was really thankful for George and his willingness to be there. I particularly understand the challenge that George faces because I used to be that guy. When Tom would get sick on Friday night or Saturday morning, I was the one that would get the text message saying, hey, do you have anything ready to preach? And so I really appreciate George's willingness to step up At last minute and uh, preach. Hopefully his message was an encouragement to you, but that allows us to come to Joshua chapter 12 through 19 in our time together now this morning. There was a question that I found bugging me, and I expect I'm not alone in this. Do you have any unfinished or partially finished projects that kind of linger in your home? Maybe in your home or in your apartment, things that you have had on your to-do list for a long time but have never quite found the time to finish. Over the last few weeks, Jenna and I have been trying to get our house ready to sell, trying to move into Lincoln, as some of you know. And I've been staggered by the number of items that I've lived with for several years in partially finished status. Things I started when we moved into the house eight years ago, but never quite got around to finishing. Things like the landscaping rock, which is entirely finished around our entire house with the exception of two, like, five-foot stretches. Things like our basement trim, which I sanded and primed and painted, but never got back around to adding the second final coat to. Things like our kitchen, which my wife will tell you is painted half gray and half this weird dark color of purple. I'm going to get it done, I promise. The list could go on and on and on. Things that I have gotten half done and never quite gotten around to finishing. And I expect I'm not the only one that struggles with that. It's easy to fall into this trap to start a project, to get to the point where it's nearly done and then stop working on it and never come back to it. Maybe it's a shift in your kids' schedules, maybe it's a life change, or maybe it's starting another project. Somehow we get away from the thing we were doing and eventually find that we never get back to it. And if you go on long enough not getting back to it, don't you find that you become oblivious to the fact that it never got done. You find yourself walking right past that project, and you don't even notice that it isn't finished anymore. Am I right? In short, we get comfortable with having the job incomplete. Now, why do I mention that? Aside from sharing with you that I'm very bad at house projects and honey-do lists, The reason I bring that point up is because I believe that's in many ways precisely what Israel is facing as a temptation as we come to Joshua 12 through 19 this morning. God has brought them into the land, and over the course of seven long years of battle, he has conquered every enemy they have faced. One by one, their foes have been subdued, and the land has been conquered. Well, nearly completely conquered. There remains just a few pockets of resistance that the individual tribes are called to deal with once the land has been divided up. We'll read about those here in just a moment. But the question we find ourselves asking as we come to this allotment of the land is, once the Israelites are safe, once they are secure, once they are comfortable in the land, will they finish the job or will they become complacent? Will they finish the task that God set them to at the beginning of the book of Joshua or will they just get comfortable. That's the question I want us to ask and wrestle with as we read through this text in our time together this morning. But before we get to that, let me make sure we stop and ask for God's guidance in this endeavor. Father, we thank you for the time to be together this morning, for the joy it is to sing praises with your church, for the chance it is to know you and to seek to know you more. Lord, I pray that as we study this text together this morning, even briefly, that you would use it to shape and to mold us, that you would use it to challenge us and refine us, Lord, that you would use it to glorify yourself. Help us exalt Christ in our time together this morning. Help us to see how that reflects on the way we ought to live our lives in light of what you've given us and blessed us with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 12 is the midpoint of the book. Joshua is 24 chapters long, so as we reach our midpoint in the book today, we transition from the book's second section to its third section. We've talked about this a few times over the course of the last few weeks. The first section, chapters 1 through 5, describe the passing over, the crossing into the land of promise. After that, we came to the second section, which we've been on the last few weeks, chapters 6 through 12, which we'll wrap up this morning, the taking of the land, the conquest, or the defeat of the peoples that were inhabiting the promised land. Today's text includes both a review of the conquest, we'll find that in chapter 12, and then it transitions into our third section, the dividing up of the land, the allotment is the word you'll notice comes up multiple times, the separating out of the pieces to the different tribes of Israel. And it does so intentionally, I believe, causing us to ask, will Israel finish the job? Will they finish possessing their possession, if I can say it that way? God has given them this land, will they Finish the task that God lays before them. See, I think through this allotment of the land, we see three things that God has given Israel very clearly to do in the promised land. First of all, God has given them an unfinished task. They have an unfinished task which God is calling them to complete. Secondly, God has given them a perfect start. He has given them the prime start to the situation that he's calling them to address. And lastly, he leaves them with a clear choice. An unfinished task, a perfect start, and a clear choice. First, God gives them an unfinished task. We find that in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1 through 13, verse 7. Stressing the point, the author describes the past success that Israel has already experienced. Look at this. The first success story is a story about Moses in verse 1. Here's what we read. Now, these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. And all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon, ruled over Arorier. And I'm just going to actually summarize this next section because there's a whole bunch of names and lists and things like that. What he goes on to describe in this section is what's known as the Transjordan region. It's the region that Israel conquered east of the Jordan River. You'll recall this in the, book, in the books of the Pentateuch that have come before the book of Joshua. And in these verses, it reminds us that Moses has defeated these two kings, Sihon and Og, verse 2 and verse 4. And then it wraps all it up by describing how Moses was successful in all of this. Look at verse 6. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Right? He starts off this section by summarizing how Moses, through God's help, conquered the tribes or the kings east of the Jordan, these two kings, Sihon and Og. But next he speaks of Joshua's more recent success in the land, and we see success story number two. Look at verse 7. And these are the kings of Israel whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan. So Moses was east side of the Jordan. Joshua is west-sided in the promised land. He goes on from Balagad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments. He goes on to describe in more detail what those looked like. He summarizes all of the conquest of the land, everything that we've read about over the last few chapters, by saying that Joshua, through God's help, was able to defeat, if you count it, 31 kings in the promised land. So as great as Moses was, he defeated two kings with God's help. Joshua defeated 31 kings in the promised land. See how he's detailing the past success that the Israelites have experienced. I think we can call Joshua's tenure as a leader of Israel fairly successful, can we not? Which brings him to the moment at hand. The task that remains, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. We read this as he defines what yet remains. God speaks to Joshua. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Jeshurites from the Shihor east of, the, or east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of Avim, in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Merah, that belongs to the Sidonians, and Afik, to the boundary of the Amorites, to the land of the Gibeonites, and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise, from Balagad, below Mount Hermon, to Labo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon, to Misrafoth, Maam, even all the Sidonians. That's a mouthful, right? Like I said, you don't want me to read through all the rest of this here, because you're gonna, you're gonna hear that same sort of thing coming up, but this is the point. All the inhabitants of the hill country, right? I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and a half-tribe of Manasseh. Okay, so he says, Moses defeated these two kings east of the Jordan. Joshua defeated these 31 kings west of the Jordan. Now, what remains? Quite a bit of land, actually. The Canaanites are there. The Philistines are there. There's a number of different people groups that have still not been fully driven out by Israel. And so God looks at Joshua and he says, you're too old to finish this job. Does anybody find themselves chuckling when you read verse 1? The Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. What does it mean for God to look at you and say, you're too old for this job? I'll have to ask Mike about that when he gets back. I love Mike, okay? (laughs) He'll appreciate that. (laughs) But he says, much land remains. There's an unfinished task here. Moses was successful. Joshua was successful. Who's going to take that baton and run with it? And he says, again, you're not left to your own devices. It's not as if God says, I did my job. Now it's your turn. He says, no, I will drive them out, verse 6. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. God says, what I want you to do, the land is not fully subdued. I've broken the, the back of the oppression, the back of the enemy, but I need you to finish the task. Don't get comfortable. Don't settle down. It's very clear from the introduction to the allotment of the land here that God gave Israel an unfinished task to complete told them, I have done the work of moving you in. The land lays prepared for you to finish. Are you going to go and finish the job? It's almost as if God has given them a gift that has some assembly required. You know what I mean? We're coming up on Christmas, right? So you young parents that are about to do your Amazon shopping and order all those things for your children, and then when they arrive, you find out some assembly is required, and so, you know, you have 32 specialized tools to try and put this thing together and you're rushing on Christmas Eve to try and get it all put together and all that. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are going to find out here in a few weeks. It's as if God is saying, here's the gift I've given you, but there's some assembly required. You've got to finish the task. Now, it's not like God has left them without instructions, right? It's not as if God hasn't told them what they're supposed to do. He hasn't told them how to do it, but he said, you need to be faithful in finishing the task that I've given you. Now, let's take a moment. Can we think of anything as New Testament saints that God has commanded us to finish? Can we think of any explicit tasks that God has given us as New Testament saints? I would submit to you that just like the Israelites, we have a remaining enemy and we have an unfinished task. We have a remaining enemy and we have an unfinished task. First, a remaining enemy. Much like the Israelites who had these small pockets of Philistines and Canaanites and other people groups still in the land, we must live the rest of our Christian life with sin that still indwells our hearts and bodies, do we not? We have to wrestle with the fact that until Christ comes back, the burden of our sinful nature and our flesh will continue to war against what the Spirit is trying to do. And every day we have to make the choice whether we're going to submit to God's word and God's will or whether we're going to submit to getting comfortable and just living with the sin. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27, Paul writes that he disciplines his body. He literally beats his body to keep it under control so that his sin won't break out because it's always waiting at the door. It's always waiting to come out in some unbelievable way. Do you feel that way? Do you sense that in your own walk? That much like these tribes that were left in the land, they were just waiting for an opportunity to seize on Israel and take advantage of the situation. Our sin sits at the door waiting for an opportunity to come out. And we have to spend the entire rest of our life here on earth waging war against sin in our hearts rooting out every trace of sin wherever it might be, and it doesn't get easier just because you get older. The sins that plague us just change. I've been reading John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, a book I would highly recommend if you can wade through the weird prose and language of it. But it's been such a good conviction of me how we're dependent on the power of the Spirit and we're in this constant battle with sin to subdue it and to mortify it every day of our lives. We've been left with this remaining enemy, but we've also been left with this unfinished task. What is the task that God has left his New Testament saints with? Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples. Until I come back, this task is your primary mandate. This is what you're called to do with every ounce of energy and effort you have. Make disciples. Share the gospel. Train people up. Teach them. Baptize them. Send them out. This is the task, and it remains unfinished until Christ returns. This is what our energy and our effort is meant to be focused on. I love Christ's promise. It's very, very similar to what God has promised here to the Israelites What does Christ say? And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. I will enable this victory if you would but be faithful in pursuing the task. We're not called to save people. We're not called to make it happen. But we are called to faithfully do what God has commanded us to do. That means mortification and putting to death the sin in our own hearts every day. And that means laying our lives on the line to see people won for the sake of Christ. We have a remaining enemy and an unfinished task. We'll explore that more here as we go on. And both these things remain until Christ returns. But Israel wasn't just given an unfinished task to complete here. God also gave them the perfect start on it. And we see that here in this next section. Now, you'll notice I have chapter 13, verse 8 through 1951. not going to read all that. We're going to skim over the top of that. But let me do uh, or make an effort here to give you some sense for what the structure looks like, for how this part of the text of Joshua breaks down. There are two major geographic sections that we find in chapters 13 through 19, and they follow the geographic sections we've already introduced. There's the land east of the Jordan that Moses conquered. That's going to get distributed. And there's the land west of the Jordan that Joshua conquered. That's going to get distributed. So let me walk through this in very high-level, broad flyover. Try to follow with me here. Okay, the east allotment is described in chapter 13, verses 8 through 33. It's introduced by the tribes being introduced and the land being introduced. Look at verse 8 in chapter 13. With the other half-tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites, received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. And it goes on to detail that in 9 through 12. Pick up in verse 13. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Macathites, but Geshur and Machath, but dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord of God of Israel are the inheritance, as he said to him. Okay, so it's introduced here. Then he goes on in chapter 13 to describe the tribal boundaries for Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. If that doesn't make any sense to you, remember that there were 12 sons of Jacob, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. Levi is not given a portion. We'll talk about that later. And Joseph has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Those are those half tribes that he's talking about here. So Manasseh gets some land and Ephraim will be addressed later before he summarizes this east allotment here in verse 22, or 32 and 33. These are the inheritances that Moses distributed on the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord, God of Israel, is their inheritance, just as he said to them. That's the east allotment, right? Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, they get their land. Then he switched to the west allotment, and this is what chapters 14 through 19 are all about. You'll notice there's a very similar structure to it. There's an introduction, there's the tribal boundaries of what gets given to whom, and then there's a conclusion. Same sort of introduction. Look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel, gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. If you're doing your math, 12 minus two and a half. See how that works? Okay. Okay. So these are the other nine and a half tribes on the west side of the Jordan. Verse 3. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for the livestock and their substance. We'll talk about that next week. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. That's the introduction. The remainder, in chapter 15, Judah is given their land, a massive portion of land in the south of Israel. Then Joseph, both Ephraim in chapter 16 and Manasseh in chapter 17, are also given their allotments of land. In chapter 18, we'll come back to this text, verses 1 through 10, they meet at Shiloh and the the Ark of the Covenant is set up and the tabernacle is set up there. We'll come back to this in just one moment. And then the final seven tribes are given their allotments of land as well, Benjamin, Simeon. Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. All of these tribes are given their allotment in the land. Now there's one other thing that's worth noting here. I'm gonna drive some of you a little bit crazy because some of you are looking at this outline and you're saying there's some verses missing, Brad. Is there a typo up there on the screen? No, there's not. Because what's worth noting is that this allotment, these tribal boundaries in the middle is actually bookended by two really important stories. There's two ends, two caps on either end of this story that are really critical. They're the stories of how the two spies who went first into the promised land and gave a good report are given their portion in the land as well. First, Caleb in chapter 14, verses 6 through 15, and then Joshua to round out the end of the section in 1949 through 50. We'll come back to those stories here in just one moment. And then again, the West tribe allotments are concluded. Look at 19 verse 51. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. That's this section, this heart in the book of Joshua, this text that most of us have a very difficult time reading. Right? We read sections like this and we find ourselves going, really is every part of Scripture profitable? Is it really? As I'm reading through all of these names that I can't pronounce and I don't know where they are and why does he mention that this tree is really important? I just want to make three brief observations. The amount of time dedicated to this fulfillment of God's promise is really critical in the book of Joshua. And though we're not going to preach through it all verse by verse, I want to note three incredible privileges that we see here about God's perfect start for the people. First, I want us to note that the detail in these verses emphasizes the incredible unearned gift that, the, or that Israel was given. Hundreds of cities, hundreds of territories are listed off in these verses. Promises that were made 400 years before this to the people of Israel come to fulfillment in these chapters. Now, if I were to make a promise to you 400 years ago, to give you some sort of gift, and then today I were to actually give it to you, how long do you think you would spend admiring the gift I had given you? If you had been waiting 400 years, and Israel here is astonished by the grace and the blessing that God has given them. And so they take the time to detail it all out, to name everything, to describe where everything is at, to walk around. It's almost like they're on a tour. They're taking a hike through the promised land, right? And this is much what it would look like. I apologize that I wasn't able to get all of it on one slide, but unfortunately, Israel is really tall and not very wide. I thought about turning it sideways, but I thought that would confuse people. So this is what the land kind of looks like, okay? So you've got the east tribe of Manasseh over on the east side of the Jordan River, then Naphtali and Asher, Zebulun, Issachar, West Manasseh, all in the northern part. You want to flip to that second slide real quick? This is the southern land, right? So Manasseh and then Gad and then Reuben on that east side, then Ephraim and Dan and Benjamin and Judah and Simeon are all given their allotments within the land. And these chapters detail out God's incredible blessing to the people. Think about how important that would have been for ongoing generations to be able to look back and say, This is when God fulfilled his promise. This is when God gave us precisely what he said to Abraham that he would give us. And so as you read through this detailed account, don't let your eyes glaze over and forget how significant it was that this was a 400-year-old promise that God was making good on. But I also want to note a second privilege of this perfect start that he's given Israel. When you look at that map, you realize that every tribe has a good start and they have a clear task. God has won the major victory in the promised land for these people. They have to faithfully finish the task. And those unfinished pockets of resistance are located in a number of different tribes and this is the call for them to finish what God started. To possess their possession. To be faithful in pursuing the promise that God had given them. So it emphasizes the incredible unearned gift that they're living in cities that they didn't build. It is a reminder that they have a clear task and objective that they're called to faithfully pursue. It's also helpful to remember that God in this text sets apart a whole tribe to help guide them into that. One of the things you'll note if you read through this entire section a few times is you'll notice the preeminence of the tribe of Levi and the priests. They come up multiple times. They're noted six different times in this section. At both the intro and conclusion of the east allotment, at the intro and conclusion of the west allotment, and then multiple times in chapter 18 in the meeting at Shiloh. We don't have time to flesh this out here this morning. We'll address it more next week. But it's worth noting that God has established the tribe of Levi. He has given them the priests, and he has spread them throughout the land specifically to teach his people his word and how to faithfully worship him he has set Israel up perfectly in this scenario to be faithful to what he's calling them to do. They've each been given their tribal allotments. They've been given the Levites to guide them and direct them with the word of God. And they've been given this incredible unearned blessing on the part of God. God has given them the perfect start to their task. Kind of reminded me as I was thinking through what we see here and what was left to be Or left to be done, it's it's kind of like smart goals. Anybody familiar with smart goals and business practices? Any goal that is supposed to be smart is supposed it's an acronym, right? It's supposed to be specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-based. Now, my desire here isn't to endorse business practices with the Word of God. That's not my point. But very similar to that, God gives Israel goals that are very straightforward. He says, "This is the land that I want you to possess." These are the cities and these are the peoples that I want you to drive out. I will go with you to help you achieve it. And if you don't, you're going to be led astray by the people in their worship of foreign gods. We read about that in Deuteronomy 7. It says, this is the task. Are you going to do it or are you going to leave it undone? That's true of us too, isn't it? That we have also been given a perfect start to the task God has laid before us, have we not? Both the task of fighting sin and the task of disciple-making are based upon what Christ has already done. We can defeat sin today in our lives because of Christ's victory over sin. That's what Romans 6 is all about. Paul writes, you were once slaves to sin, and now you're slaves to righteousness. You had no choice but to sin before. Now Christ has given you the ability to have victory over sin. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to fight? Are you going to get comfortable? This fighting sin becomes possible because of Christ's victory, because he's done the work of defeating sin once and for all. But disciple-making is just as much built on the perfect start that we've been given. Disciple-making, the Great Commission, is possible because of Christ's sacrifice. The only reason we can pursue this task that Christ has given us is because of the perfect start that Christ has given us. Because he has achieved everything that needs to be achieved and he's given us the gospel. Second Corinthians would say you have this treasure in jars of clay. You have this incredible message housed in kind, inside of fallible fallen people. Are you going to share it with somebody or are you going to keep it hidden? Are you going to let the light out or are you going to bury it under a bushel?" Disciple-making can seem like an insurmountable task. Do you find yourself intimidated as you try and share the gospel with those around you? As you try and share the reason for the hope you have? As you try and share why you have put your faith in Jesus Christ? I would submit to you that if you're intimidated by the task, it's because you don't realize the perfect start that God has given you. Your job isn't to save people. Your job is to simply share what he's given you. You have the truth of the gospel, you have the word of God, you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need to finish the task that God has called you to finish. Are you going to step out? Are you going to move forward? Are you going to rest and trust in the promises that God has given? Or are you going to get comfortable? The fact remains that Christ has given us the perfect start for our task as well. Just as God set up the Israelites perfectly in the land and said, I want you to finish this job, God has set us up perfectly and has said, are you going to mortify sin? Are you going to fight this battle? Are you going to share the gospel with those around you? Or are you going to get comfortable in this culture that you live in? But there's one more thing at play in this passage. One more thing that I want to make sure we note Because an unfinished task and a perfect start imply that Israel also has a clear choice. They have a clear choice. If you read through this whole section, you'll also notice that the author sprinkles in some very select, carefully chosen stories. A number of little miniature stories meant to highlight a couple of things for us. I think the author here, I suspect Joshua, is laying out the two options before the Israelites. He's saying this is what faithful obedience looks like And this is what passive disobedience looks like. He gives us four stories of bold obedience, and I'm just going to highlight these here real briefly. Four stories of bold obedience that we read in this section. I want to start off with Caleb in chapter 14. Look at 14 verses 6 through 15. Remember, Caleb was one of the faithful spies who went to the land and brought back a good report. Now he's given his land here in 14, 6 through 15. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunah, the Kez, or Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me? I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again, again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt. Yet I fully followed the Lord my God." And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land in which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years, since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is my strength was then, For war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country, of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there. Remember, the Anakim were the giants that they faced. With great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave him Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became an inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenazite to this day because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim and the land had rest from war. See how incredible that is? Caleb is part of the original 12 spies that go into the land. He and Joshua bring a good report. The other 10 cause the people to rebel against God and Joshua and Caleb have to wait 45 years for the promise that God gave them to be fulfilled. And yet 45 years later, Caleb holds on to that promise and said, God said this, and I trust him today. I can't help but be inspired by Caleb's bold obedience here. In chapter 15, we get a story of Othniel, who becomes Caleb's son-in-law because he boldly goes out and conquers a city that Caleb says, whoever conquers this city, I'll let my daughter be married to you. It's a strange story for those of us that don't really understand arranged marriages in our day today, but it's worth noting, at least, that for Caleb's part, what he does is he looks for a man that is faithful to God's promises as a son-in-law. Just food for thought there for those fathers with daughters out there. What are you looking for in someone who would marry your daughter? Someone that makes a lot of money? Is it someone that does any number of different things, or is it someone that's faithful to God's promises? And young ladies, what are you looking for in a husband? Othniel exemplifies trust and faith in God, and as a result, he's given this city. I encourage you to read about it this afternoon. In chapter 7, or 17, verses 3 through 6, we run into Zelophehad's daughters, It's a fascinating story. Again, I would encourage you to read it this afternoon, but these daughters, this man doesn't have any sons, and yet he's been promised this inheritance in the land, and so these daughters boldly go to Joshua, and they say, we've been promised an inheritance. We've given this, or we've been promised this reality, and they stand up and remember God's word. Again, I'm not going to go into detail on that. And then in chapter 19, verses 49 and 50, we read about Joshua's boldness. I love this ending in some ways to Joshua's leadership here at the end of chapter 19. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritance, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timneserah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. Joshua, just like Caleb, was one of the faithful spies and he's given an inheritance, he's given a city here in the land. And I love how humble that ending is for Joshua's leadership. Joshua doesn't hold on to the authority, doesn't try to become a king like so many in the book of Judges do. He simply rests in the inheritance that God has given him for his faithfulness. And I think all four of these stories seem to hold out the possibility to Israel of individuals who faithfully obey God's commands and what God does for them. All four of them boldly say, God has promised we will trust him. God has promised to do this. We will rest and trust that he will be faithful to it. And as a result, all four of them are reminders of how God rewards those that are faithful to him. But the author also takes pains to remind us that Israel failed to complete their task as a whole. And we also see five examples of Israel's passive failure in these chapters as well flip back to chapter 13 first we see the failure of the transjordan tribes those tribes that were east of the jordan river in chapter 13 verse 13 we read yet the people of israel did not drive out the gesherites or the Maccathites, but gesher and Maccath dwell in the midst of israel to this day reuben and gad and this half tribe of nasa got complacent they failed to fully finish the task that God had called them to. Judah's guilty of the same thing. Look at chapter 15, verse 63. At the end of this long list of cities and regions that Judah is given, in verse 63, we read, "But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive, or they, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day." And Judah got comfortable with the peoples of the land living among them. How about Ephraim? Look at chapter 16, verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. So they made them servants, but they didn't drive them out. We note Manasseh's failure in chapter 17, verse 12 and 13. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. And in some ways, these four stories are the success stories among the Israelites. The more bold of the 12 tribes, because everything after chapter 18, we read this. Look at chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. Listen to Joshua's words here in verse 3. I think these are critical. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? See what's going on here? We note the boldness of these tribes who have gone into the land to take possession on some level, but they've all failed. And then we get to chapter 18. Joshua looks at the remaining seven tribes and says, why aren't you doing anything? Why are you sitting here passively? How long will you wait to do what God has called you to do? In the following verses, he sets up a plan for the people to go out and to break up the land, and they cast lots and distribute the Land to the different tribes, but the story still stands as a reminder of Israel's passive failure. That God had broken the backs of the Canaanites, and yet they got comfortable. They said, It's been seven long years of war. I'm just tired. They're not really causing a threat to Israel. Why would we go and start another battle? They get comfortable, they get complacent, they get indifferent. And these five editorial notes remind us how easy it is for Israel to slip into passive, complacent disobedience. And how easy it is for us to slip into passive, complacent disobedience, is it not? God leaves Israel here with a clear choice. Passive failure to what he's called them to do or bold obedience. What are they going to do? In the conclusion of the book, in chapters 20 through 24, it details what obedience looks like in the promised land. Over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to cover these chapters. They are called to be culturally unique, that's chapter 20. They're called to be religiously distinct, that's chapter 21. To be geopolitically united, that's chapter 22. Divinely led, that's chapter 23. And wholly devoted to the Lord, that's chapter 24. These are the ways that the Israelites are to be faithful in the promised land. We'll cover that over the course of the next few weeks. But the choice is made here. What will they do? Will they settle for passive disobedience? Or will they aggressively, boldly pursue what God has called them to do? You see how this might be relevant for us today too? it is so easy for us to settle for getting comfortable in the culture that we're in as well. It is so easy for us to slip back into saying, well, I've done a pretty good job of kind of stifling sin in my life, of managing sin in my life. I think I'm pretty much good to go on cruise control for a while. We get comfortable, we get complacent. And what ends up happening? That small pocket of sin that we thought for sure we had under control roars back to life and takes advantage, does it not? And every day we have the choice whether we will faithfully seek to eradicate sin through the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit to wipe every final small corner of our heart from the sin that's possessing it or whether we'll just learn to live with it. We'll just get comfortable with it we'll say that's 95% done, we're probably good. And we walk by it every day, and it grows and it festers and it lingers until one day it comes back to bite us. Every day we have the choice whether we're going to boldly pursue our task of making disciples of all nations with every ounce of our being and every dollar in our bank accounts and every minute of our time we're going to, or we're going to passively sit on the sidelines. Thinking, I'm comfortable, God. Don't move me anywhere. Don't put me somewhere else. Don't ask me to give up my comfortable life. Don't ask me to give up the American dream of the white picket fence and the house on the corner and 1.8 children. Every day we have the choice. Are we going to pursue God's plan Are we going to pursue God's task for our lives as long as we're in this world? Or are we going to settle for the American dream? Every day we face this clear choice. Passive failure, bold obedience, trusting in God's promises and pursuing that in faith, or growing comfortable and complacent right where we are. Israel's allotment is an incredible reminder in many ways. It's a reminder of God's fulfillment to his people, of God's plans coming to fruition. It's a reminder of the ultimate hope in heaven that we one day have that Corey spoke of. But this book, I think it primarily functions to remind us that just like Israel, we have been given an unfinished task. Are we going to mortify sin in our lives? Are we going to pursue the Great Commission with everything we have? Are we going to sit idly by? God has given us this perfect start. He has set us up with everything we need to be faithful. All that we need for life and godliness. Are we going to capture those? Are we going to remind ourselves of those promises? Or are we going to grow complacent and indifferent? We stand with a choice before us, just like Israel. Bold obedience. Passive failure. And the painful part is if you've read beyond this in your Bibles, you know that the next book is the book of Judges. For those of you that don't know, the book of Judges functions like the opposite side of a coin to the book of Joshua. Everything that one generation accomplishes for God in the book of Joshua, the next generation lets go in the book of Judges. The political unity that they've achieved in these 12 tribes, they end up fighting with each other in Judges. Their faithfulness to God and his law, they end up totally rebelling against in the book of Judges. Their worship and following the Levites here in Joshua, they totally abandon, and the Levites are primarily negative in the book of Judges. Everything that God calls them to faithfully do in the book of Joshua, they fail to do in the book of Judges. So ultimately, the people of Israel, when faced with this, are you going to finish the task or are you going to get complacent, they settle for complacency. They choose the easy option, they choose the easy route, and they settle in and get comfortable with their sin. I pray that that won't be true of us as a church, that we won't get comfortable with our sin, that we won't get comfortable with the fact that billions of people are on a dead trajectory for hell and we're called to preach the gospel to them. I pray that that won't be true of you That you won't just settle for unfinished jobs, walking by them every day, totally oblivious to what God is calling you to finish. I pray that that won't be true of me. That we will choose bold obedience rather than faithful indifference and failure. So I ask you, here this morning, before you go home, what area of life is God calling you to finish the job? What area of life have you grown complacent? What sin is hiding in the corner of your heart? What indifference to the call and the commission of God is in your life that God is calling you today to faithfully pursue? Until he comes back or he calls you home. The task is clear. We've been given everything we need. All that's left to do is choose. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the fact that you are faithful, that you are good, that you are gracious, that you are loving. Lord, Israel's presence in the land is exactly like what we read in Deuteronomy 7. It isn't because they're so great, it isn't because they're so mighty, it isn't because they had somehow earned it, but it's entirely because you set your love on them. Father, that is so true of us today as well. You haven't chosen us because we're mighty. You haven't chosen us because we're wise. You haven't chosen us because we have it all together. But you've chosen us to exemplify your glory. But having chosen us, you've called us to be faithful. You've called us to rest in your promises, to trust in your word, to rely on your spirit, to to work together with your people, to pursue the mission that you've given your church. Lord, help us to see the reality of those that don't know you around the world dying and going to an eternity in hell. Lord, help it to motivate us to pursue the task that you've given us. Lord, as individuals, help us to not become complacent about our sin. Help us to not become indifferent to those little parts of our heart that seek to fester and build up until all of a sudden they explode into wrecking our lives. Lord, help us to fight that battle, mortifying sin, submitting to your word day after day after day. Pray that we would be found faithful when you return as individuals and as a church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.